If you watch that video clip very closely, you will notice that it started and ended with the same phrase, I love you, Lord. And then in between those two bookends is what it means to love the Lord. Now, the explanation for that little video clip, I think, is very, very helpful. Let me read it for you. Worship is about expressing God's worth. It's about putting ourselves aside and dwelling only on Him. It's about living our lives in a way which reflects how we truly feel about Him. In our worship, in our actions, in our lives, may we all be saying in one voice, I love you, Lord. It's interesting in the Gospel of Mark, uh, when we reach that point where the Bible says that Jesus' enemies dared ask Him no more questions after He had answered them all, Jesus now has a question to ask them. And His question went to the heart of this very, very issue, His true nature as Lord. But then what Jesus does is, as a skillful teacher, as we have been seeing He is, He applies to us what that means. When we say, I love you, Lord, then how does that translate into actions and into living? And this morning, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, Uh, I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Mark 12, verses 35 to 40. And let's look together at Jesus and the truth He gives to us about His own nature and seek to live it out. He wonderfully applies that to us as we seek to live it out in our lives. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible or the Chair Bible in front of you, it's page 1009. And let's follow along as Jesus teaches us so wonderfully. Mark 12, verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we are here today to 
declare the wonderful truth that Jesus is Lord. And what we have sung is really the true expression of our heart that we do love You, Lord. But we thank You that uh, that wonderful truth is more than words. It's to lead to actions. It's to lead to living life in a certain way. And thank You that as Jesus reveals who He truly was, He then skillfully shows us what it means to live under His Lordship. Guide us now in our understanding uh, that we might think the thoughts of God after Him and then feel the truth in our very hearts and then walk from this place to live as men and women of God. We thank You now for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's begin with the truth, shall we? Jesus starts by telling us that the truth is that He is Lord. Now, this is the central truth of our Christian faith. If you were to go through a little survey in the New Testament, you would find it was the theme of the be saved in the book of Acts. It is the central confession one must make in order to be saved. It is the central confession of all history. And did you know that this truth is the central confession of the Holy Spirit? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12.3, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so look at this. One truth separates Christianity from all false religions and all false cults, and that truth is Jesus is Lord. Now, in this passage, to set up his question, Jesus uses two titles that were commonly used of the Messiah. You will notice in verse 35, he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David. And the first title he uses is this expression, the Christ. Now, today we all understand Christ as a proper name. But in Jesus' day, uh, Christ was a title. And you see that here with the uh, article, the, the Christ. Perhaps you know that Christ is the Greek expression, For the Hebrew expression, Messiah, uh, they both mean anointed king, and they are referred to a ceremony in which the king of Israel was coronated. And so Jesus is using that title. Now, I want you to notice that because he wanted to teach, instead of start an argument at this point... He refers to himself indirectly as the Christ. Then notice the second title he uses, Son of David. Do you know that was the most common title for the Messiah? It is found all throughout the Old Testament. The crowds, when they would refer to Jesus, would often refer to him as Son of David. The two genealogies of Matthew and Luke both go all the way back to David to prove that Jesus really came from David's royal line. 
But did you know there was a problem associated with these two titles? The Christ and Son of David. David was a warrior. He was a deliverer. And so, Son of David emphasized a conquering king, a Christ, who would come and bring freedom. And the Old Testament talked about this, and the people of God look forward to that great day when this Son of Jesus one express and be their prince. Look at Ezekiel 37.25, which is one expression of this hope. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. And every Jew looked forward to this time when the Davidic king, the Christ, the son of David, would rule. But what's interesting here is Jesus quotes another Old Testament prophecy because He wants to expand their understanding of who He really is. The verses that we read are a quotation from Psalm 110. And I want you to read with me verses 1 and 2. And Jesus quotes the yellow part here in Mark 12. Would you read this with me? The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Because they had a limited view of who Jesus really was, He wanted to expand their understanding. He wanted them to see a, a much grander view of who the Messiah was. Here's what Jewish teachers would often do. They would often quote a verse in the Old Testament that had an apparent contradiction. And then they would ask their disciples, what's the answer to this contradiction? Here's the interesting thing. The Jewish rabbis and teachers, they never applied these verses to the Messiah. So they never asked about the contradiction in the verses. Can I just pause here again and say once again we see Jesus saw things in the Old Testament no one else had ever seen? These verses are messianic. In fact, brothers and sisters, Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted, referenced Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. And I want you to notice that um, we can see something very, very interesting through this little diagram of Psalm 110 Testament verse. There are three characters in Psalm 110 and verse 1. There is 
David, who wrote the psalm. There is David's Lord, who would be one of his descendants and rule on his throne in the future. And then there is the Lord, Yahweh. And you'll notice here that David says, this is what occurred. The Lord Yahweh spoke to my descendant, whom he calls the Lord, and says, one day you're going to sit at my right hand. Now we need to see what's going on here. Yahweh, or the Lord, is the covenant name for Israel, And in this verse, it refers to God the Father. The little Lord, who is David's descendant, is a generic word for the deity, Adonai, emphasizing that He is God, and here it refers to the Messiah. Now, do you see what's going on? David says, God the Father called the Messiah David's descendant, Lord, Do you see the contradiction? How can David's descendant at the same time be his Lord at the same time? Suppose I were to say to you this morning, your grandson is going to be your Lord. You know what you would say to me? Pastor Brian, that's impossible. If my grandson is my descendant, there is no way that he could be my Lord. And so Jesus asked this contradiction to get all of us to think about Him in a new way. What is the solution? He is David's son. And He is God's Son. He is both. He is God and He is man. By the way, it's interesting to connect this back to what Jesus said in verse 29. He quoted the great Shema of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there is one God. But now notice what we see here. The Father is Lord. The Messiah is Lord. If God is one, but there are two persons who are, who are God, two persons, the foundations right here for the Trinity, here are two persons, but one God. And later on, in just a few days, as Jesus is with His disciples at the Last Supper, He will add the Trinity, and He will say, the Holy Spirit is another Helper just like Me, so that all three are one God in three persons. What an amazing insight Jesus had. There's something else here we dare not miss. Look at the incredible precision of Old Testament prophecy. The future Messiah would be both man, David's son, and God, 
David's Lord. And you say, how can that be true? The person would have to be a God-man. And there is only one person on the planet who fit that description, and that is Jesus. Bible prophecy points exactly to Him and to no one else. You know what this means, brothers and sisters? We can not only trust Him, but we can trust the Bible. We can not only trust Him as the Lord He claimed to be, but we can trust the Bible who so perfectly, precisely points to the right one. When I was a little boy, we used to sing a song in church. It went like this. I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. It's the Word of God. And now we see the amazing reason why that song is exactly right. Exactly right. There's something else we need to see here. It's always easy for us to see the Bible from our own viewpoint. To see what we want to see and not what we should see. And by stressing David's Davidic sonship, what the Jews had done was they had turned God's kingdom into an earthly revolution. And that's all they were focused on. He had another, but by stressing his deity, Jesus said he had another purpose for coming. And that purpose was to bring people to God. You see, what Jesus was teaching is God's kingdom ultimately is a spiritual kingdom, and to live there, we need a Savior. And because Jesus is Lord, He is that Savior. And Jesus can do many wonderful things for us, but the most important thing He wants to do is save us. That's the most important thing. And sometimes as a Christian, you're sitting in your seat and everything around you is falling apart. And things are going the exact opposite direction that you understood they would go. And you sit there in the midst of your questioning and sometimes your misery and your hurt. And the one thing you can say is, I know who Jesus is. I know what He came to accomplish. I am saved and I'm headed towards His eternal kingdom. There is nothing that brings peace like knowing that. Do you see here? Jesus is Lord. Now, as we look at this next section, we, we wonder, 
How in the world do these verses relate to what Jesus has just taught? I mean, this is some very deep teaching that no one had ever seen before from Psalm 110. And notice what he says in verse 38 as he follows it up. And in his teaching, he said, verse 38, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. How does this fit with what we have just learned? Well, here's how I think it fits. Let me give you the application of the truth that Jesus is going to apply for us today. And uh, I'm going to ask our, our uh, video tech just to click on that screen so I can move to point two here, all right? There we go. Here's how Jesus applies this truth. If we really believe this, then we will say, do you know the scribes us to be Lord over me? Do you know the scribes probably caught what Jesus said about Messiah being Lord? But they rejected it. In fact, just a few days later, Jesus would say to the high priest, I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. The high priest tore his robe, accused Jesus of blasphemy, and said he is deserving of death, the entire Sanhedrin agreed, including many of these very scribes. I learned a very important lesson. When we will not accept that Jesus is Lord, we can't live under that Lordship. And what seems unrelated in these verses are in fact very related because what they do is they apply the Lordship of Christ to our lives. Let's notice how Jesus very, very skillfully says, when you say, I love you, Lord, this is what it leads to. Notice, number one, People under Christ's Lordship live for God's glory. Please mark that down. What it means, when we live under the Lordship of Christ, what it means now is we have a whole new orientation as to why we live. And we now live for God's glory. Notice the things that Jesus said about the scribes. They were motivated by a love of self-glory. He says about them, they like to walk around in long robes. Do you know who wore long robes in Jesus' day? Aristocrats and intellectuals. If you were a scribe, your, white, uh, your robe was white, and uh, as you wore that robe, it spoke of, uh, of how holy and godly you were. Do you know, normally scribes were only to wear their white robes um, on synagogue Saturday. But here's what they would do. 
they would wear the white robes to the marketplaces so that they could gain attention from the crowds. Reminds me of what the author Mark Twain used to do on Sundays in New York City. He knew exactly what time church services were going to uh, let out. And so just before the services were let out, he would show up in downtown New York with a white suit on. And as everybody got out of church, they would all say, there's Mark Twain. And the scribes here and ah. He says about the scribes here that they wanted the best seats in the synagogues. You know what the synagogue was like? In the front of the congregation, there was a long bench. And the scribes and the rabbis would sit on that bench facing the congregation. And so they would have the admiration of everybody who looked at them up in front. And then in verse 40, he said they love to make long prayers. Long flowery prayers to parade their piety and their goodness. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? The scribes were status seekers. They were attention getters. And what is so very sad about this is they were supposed to be leading people to God. Instead, it was all about glorifying themselves. And I learned something very important here. A person living under the Lordship of Christ lives for God's glory and not their own. I don't know if uh, the writer T.S. Eliot was a will recognize. He may not have been. But he said something that every one of us will recognize from observation is exactly the truth. Listen to what he said. Most of the trouble in the world is caused by people wanting to be important. That's exactly what Jesus was saying about the scribes. By the way, if you would raise your hand this morning and say, I don't want to be important, the next time you're not treated as important, see how you react. Right? This is exactly what the scribes were like. Now, what's the way to gain importance? Position? Status, influence, by being a somebody. But when you are living for God's glory, your focus is not on yourself, but rather it's on Jesus. Pastor Warren Wiersbe helps us very much here, and I want to read for you what he has said about this. Listen carefully. If a person in the office he holds only because of the uniform he wears, the title he bears, or the office he holds, then his importance is artificial. 
It is character that makes a person valuable. And nobody can give you character. You must develop it yourself as you walk with God. That is worth repeating. Let me say it again. It is character that makes a person valuable. And nobody can give you character. You must develop it yourself as you walk with God. And that's what the person who lives under the Lordship of Christ is focused on, walking with God and developing the Christ-like character of Christ. Perhaps if there's any verse in the Old Testament that puts its finger upon this very thought that Jesus is applying to us, it is Micah 6.8. Let's read this very wonderful verse together because I think it's what Jesus is driving at when He says, if you're under My Lordship, you live for the glory of God. Let's read this together, shall we? It is good. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do you know this word humbly? It means to be humble, to be modest, to be lowly. It is a person who walks with God in a self-effacing manner. And do you know this is exactly what Jesus was? The one time He described His character from a human standpoint of view, He said, I am meek and I am lowly. And this kind of life can only come through a lifetime of walking with Him under His Lordship. If He was the one who said, I am meek and I am lowly, then how do we become like this? It is a lifetime of walking underneath His Lordship. Here's the second application. Secondly, Jesus says to us, people under Christ's Lordship serve God's people. Did you notice what He said in verse 40 about the scribes? They devoured widows. So the scribes could not be paid for their teaching. So they were expected to work uh, a manual labor job, and then teach in the synagogues. Uh, Some of the scribes were full-time teachers, and so what that meant was they were supported by the gifts of others. Do you know what they would do? They would take advantage of vulnerable people. The most vulnerable people in that society were widows who were living on uh, the income that their deceased husband had left for them. And here's what some scribes would actually do. They would get widows, 
to give to them control of the widow's finances because after all, they were the man of God. And therefore, if you gave your finances under my control, God would be pleased with you and He would bless you. And that's what Jesus meant when He said they devoured widows' houses. Do you know, um, I couldn't help but think of something that I got one day in the mail that reminded me of this. One day in the mail from a TV evangelist, I got a prayer cloth. I got a letter. They were going to have an old cloth. And the letter said this, they were going to have an old-fashioned miracle healing and deliverance service. And what they wanted me to do was to take my prayer cloth, send it back to them. They would pray over it at the service and then send it to me in the mail back. And I would get a uh, uh, perhaps a touch from Jesus and experience healing in my life. Uh, there was one little additional requirement. What do you think that was? Yeah. Uh, yes, Pastor Parsley. I'm putting my faith into action, reaching for the hem of Jesus' garment as I send you my gift and my prayer cloth. I'm believing for a supernatural touch of His anointing transferred from your Dominion 97 camp meeting into my life. Enclosed is my faith gift of. And you know what I thought? If this prayer cloth is so effective, why do I have to send in a gift to make it work? This is chicanery. This man is abusing the very people he's supposed to be serving. What a sad thing that you can have people like this on national TV who say they're living under the Lordship of Christ, when the reality is it's all about them. You know what Jesus said about them? They will receive the greater condemnation. It is a sad and serious matter to abuse the very people God has sent you to serve. Remember, through this series in Mark, we have seen over and over again that the theme verse of Jesus' life is Mark 10.45. And this is what Jesus was all about. Let's read it again. 
10.45. It is exactly the point. Read with me Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the greatest servant of all. Then the only way that you and I can be like Him is if we walk with Him and live under His Lordship. And the longer we walk with Him, and the longer we live under His Lordship, the more we become like this and less like this. What a great, great truth from Jesus today. Jesus is Lord, and when we begin our service by singing together, I love you, Lord, what we are really saying is, I want to live under that Lordship, and I want to bring glory to God, and I want to serve the people of God. And if those two simple things are happening, then we are really loving the Lord. Let's bow together, shall we? And let's thank Jesus for His great teaching this morning. Lord God, we thank You today that the One we believe in and trust our eternal salvation to is indeed the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And we thank You that the Bible a thousand years before made it clear that He would be both Son of David and Son of God. And only one person in all history would fit that description. And therefore, only one person could fulfill the prophecy that was declared about Him. And in just a few days from this very teaching, Jesus went to Cating all that He did for our sins. Three days later, He rose from the dead, vindicating all that He'd ever said about Him. He is alive today. And the Bible says that if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. The Bible says no one can say Jesus is Lord and truly mean it except by the Holy Spirit. The apostles said, This same Jesus that you crucified, God has made Him both 
Lord and Christ. And someday, Lord, the Bible says that every creation, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How blessed we are today. And may as we express our love to You, now allow You to walk with us to make us like Yourself in glorifying and serving His people. For His wonderful name's sake we ask it.